Hello, my friends. This is Dr. Sean Golden, and welcome to Golden Health Method Podcast. This is a podcast about helping you reach your health and nutrition goals in every aspect. It's about continuously learning so that we can stay healthy, feel great every day, and continue to enjoy life at a high level. You know, Golden Health Method is really about understanding the ideas, tools, and strategies that will keep you feeling more vibrant and able to optimally handle what life throws at you. But I'm also going to challenge you because far too many fad diets and inaccurate nutrition ideas keep people stuck in ways of thinking that are ultimately contributing to their issues. So thank you for joining us today and I'm super pumped for today's episode. Hey everyone, so... I am super excited for today's episode. I get to interview Tim Burzins from Amped Vitality. Now, Tim, when it comes to nutrition, if you don't know about him already, he really knows his stuff. Uh, This is not someone who has just done a casual look at either, you know, online blogs and stuff like that. He has gone deep into the research and he's experimented with a lot of different types of diets going from high carb, low carb, keto, uh, intermittent fasting, you name it, he's probably tried it. And that's really a great uh, trait for someone to have because it shows that they're not, you know, fixated on a particular idea and they're willing to change their beliefs and stances depending on not only the research but their experience and the experience of uh, his clients as well. And so, In this episode, we are going to be talking primarily about fasting and specifically uh, extended fasting, you know, fasting for a few days at a time compared to the regular intermittent fasting where you eat for only eight hours a day, for example, Uh, because those two, they can provide very different benefits and the extended fast might might be able to induce some healing effects that the intermittent fasting might not be able to deliver. Uh, Towards the end, we also throw in some spiritual talk about mindfulness, uh, being present, and that sort of thing. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear this episode. Uh, I had a great chat with them. I loved talking with Tim, and enjoy! Okay, so before we jump into this episode, I just want to say real quick that unfortunately... The audio kind of got messed up. Uh, I, you know, it was just during the recording itself, and so it, I was unable to kind of edit it to fix it. Uh, so you'll hear more towards the later part of the episode uh, that Tim might sound like he's talking over me, or he's kind of like interrupting me in a sense, but he's really not. It's just the audio that's kind of overlapping them together. Um, so it's really, it's just like a couple milliseconds each time. So it's nothing that big. Uh, but you know, uh, sorry if it's a little distracting or something like that, but, uh, you can still understand it perfectly fine. Uh, just want to let you know that it's not like Tim is, uh, is, uh, purposely trying to talk over me. All right. Enjoy. All right. Hey Tim, how you doing? I'm doing well, man. Glad to be here. Yeah. Welcome to the podcast. So, um, for many of the listeners who probably aren't aware of who you are, kind of start off by telling the audience a little bit about yourself, what you do, how you got into this field and profession, and kind of why you're passionate about it. Yeah, of course. So uh, nutrition's basically been a, a life passion for me. It's something that I remember in elementary school learning about how the heart worked and like coming home and telling my mom about it because I was just so excited. So it's like even from an early age, it was just something that fascinated me. And then that quickly turned into, you know, the typical teenage boy fitness obsession kind of thing where I was in the gym all the time learning about my nutrition and how I needed to eat, you know, a certain way to look a certain way. Uh, and, you know, I loved all of that. It was really, really, really interesting, even though a lot of it was filled with the uh, common bro science and things like that, which, uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of people who are into fitness have come across. And uh, then went to college for nutrition. I was really, really uh, interested in it and wanted to continue my education. 
And around that time was when I also started getting into some of more of the fasting techniques. So I, uh, I remember, uh, Martin Birkin's lean gains approach, which is the typical 16, eight intermittent fasting type of style. I remember reading about that and feeling like this fear and hesitation of like, well, what if I don't eat breakfast? I'm going to lose all my muscle. And like, you know, those typical worries that people have when it comes to fasting. And then of course, in trying it found out that, Hey, not only do I not lose my muscle, it actually has a lot of things that are pretty awesome about it. It's a way more convenient way of eating. And, uh, then, you know, of course, everyone at, at this time of, of, you know, pop culture, everyone's saying breakfast is the most important meal of the day. So there's this uphill battle of anyone I'm talking to is, you know, I have this contrarian viewpoint, uh, you know, breakfast isn't really necessary, blah, 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 blah. And of course, now that's, you know, a lot different. People are much more open to the ideas of fasting and everything. So anyway, uh, with my fitness obsession, decided I was going to push it real, real hard, went a little bit overboard and trained too much, uh, dieted too hard and kind of developed what I would, the classic signs, I would say, of adrenal fatigue and those type, types of things. So that led me into sort of exploring more of, um, of a, a researcher named uh, Ray Pete. So uh, he's, uh, he has some very uh, different views on nutrition, um, some of which I, I think are very awesome, some of which I started to grow out of and realize that um, there's a little bit more complexity to it than maybe I had once thought. Um, around this time, I was also doing my, my uh, fitness blog, which was Versinator Fitness Designs. Um, you know, a long time ago, was coaching with people and, and having fun doing that. And that led to an internship with a company um, by, from a guy named Christopher Walker. Who uh, he owned the company Truth Nutra, and I got to go uh, down to Florida and live there and meet some really awesome people and have some really awesome experiences learning about uh, all about supplementation. I was their head researcher uh, for the new supplement, so I got to really dive into individual herbs and individual uh, vitamins and minerals, and you know, diving into the research about you know how they affected the body and how you could use them to improve your hormonal situation, all that stuff. Uh, did a lot of experimentation with some of those different supplements. You know, as, as I was the head researcher, I was kind of like responsible for making sure that that stuff worked. And I think in some sense, too many supplement, too much supplementation is, you know, not great. It really ends up, uh, distorting your body's natural ways of functioning. So I, I think supplements are awesome, but I also think I sort of overdid it. And it just led me to a place of needing to kind of come back to the baseline of, of understanding what's the real true cause of health. And instead of trying to seek it outside with nutrition, uh, only with nutrition and with supplementation, uh, is there a deeper layer to it? So around this time was a lot of spiritual awakening for me and I, a lot of meditation and then had some, some big life events happen that basically brought me uh, uh, to move away from Florida and move back home. So in that time, I uh, you know went through a lot of these realizations and started diving into uh, you know another layer of nutrition and trying to understand What's the real truth behind this? I don't want to like get caught in these camps because, you know, nutrition right now is very campy. There's like the high carb people, the low carb people. There's keto versus vegan. There's carnivore. And, uh, to me, it's like, well, everyone's like someone's getting results with all of these things. So there's some deeper truth here. Let's kind of explore that and try to understand it. So that's kind of been my direction with, uh, my new channel, which I've been doing for about four years now called Amplified Vitality. So there I've been doing videos, exploring some of these deeper nutrition concepts, doing some coaching, and uh, soon I'll be creating some programs around that kind of stuff. And uh, my recent session has actually been extended fasting, which I think we're going to get a little bit more into as we continue this conversation. Yeah, that's awesome, man. It's kind of crazy how similar your journey and my journey are, actually. Um, like I, Like all throughout, I got into this because of fitness as well, and then my first introduction to any type of diet strategy was also the lean gains approach that I did throughout college. Oh yeah. And then, uh, progressively as the years went on, I, uh, started getting more and more into health. And then uh, I found Ray Pete as well. And then I became obsessed with Ray Pete. And then I became disenchanted with Ray Pete, <laughs> just like you. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's crazy how we kind of had a very similar experience with that. Yeah. So, um, with, with dieting now, kind of like you mentioned, there are all these different camps and all these different ways of eating that some people get really good results with some strategies and they get really bad results with other, but it's kind of all over the place. Um, one thing that seems to have kind of this common ground benefit where, uh, you know, no matter which camp you're in, you can still utilize it and you can still get benefits from it is really fasting. 
And so I know that you've, you've experimented a bunch with fasting and you're doing more a little bit now. I actually just did an extended fast myself a few weeks ago. Nice. Um, so let's jump into that and just talk about what types of fasting you've personally done and experienced or experimented with and then what benefits you saw from doing those fasts. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you say, I agree with it from a physiological perspective that fasting can be useful no matter what camp you're from. But there are definitely camps that are anti, anti-fasting who think that fasting is terrible for the body and dangerous and you shouldn't do it. Um, and that's fine. That uh, You know, I understand some people won't want to hear that sort of information or aren't open to it. And if what they're doing is working, that's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But what I found is that there are a lot of benefits that can come from fasting. Uh, when I, I mentioned when I first started doing intermittent fasting, I just found that my clarity throughout the day and the convenience of not having to eat breakfast was was just was just focus on food all day long, but getting to wake up, you know, maybe like have my coffee, do my work, kind of, you know, be focused, and then at night have those bigger meals that really get me to relax and get ready for sleep. I just really liked the uh, the polarity of that, you know, like the pendulum swing between the two different states. And I think that's really important because there's a lot of associations of metabolic flexibility with health parameters. And so your ability to switch between fuel substrates, you know, like during the fasting stage, you're using fats. And if it's prolonged enough, you're using ketones. And then during the fed state, you're eating more carbohydrates. We tend to have these people who want to stay into one side or the other exclusively. So keto people, low carb people will say you always want to avoid carbs. You always want to have fats and, and some protein so that you're creating ketones and having that chronic signal turned on. Uh, and there's a lot of benefits from having, from being in that state, from being in what is more of like a fasting or a fasting mimicking state. But there's also a lot of benefits from being in a fed state, which is much more about having carbohydrates, having insulin and switching into more of that rebuild, regenerate type of stage. So the way I see it is you need to have both. You really want to be alternating between the two of them. And so the way that you do that, uh, can vary. It doesn't have to be a daily intermittent fasting, which I think now it's technically called time restricted feeding is what they're calling it. Uh, intermittent fasting is more considered something like a five, two where five days you eat and two days you completely fast. And then there's the extended fasting, which is going for three plus days, you know, 72 hours or more. So my bit, my long term experience has been with intermittent fasting, but in the last two years or so, I've been really exploring extended fasting and this is an entirely different animal than intermittent fasting because extended fasting, you're getting some some real deep cleaning, deep detox, some uh, strong epigenetic signaling, some strong phagocytosis, which is the, uh, the you know the the eating of cells of weak weak and dead cells. Uh, you really clean house to a much different degree than you can achieve with intermittent fasting, and you also enter into a way deeper level than ketosis than is possible from a keto diet by itself, and so. Uh, last year, and uh, I think it was around March, I decided I was going to embark on a uh, a fast, and I wanted to go longer than three days. But uh, I I've been reading um, Upton Sinclair's The Fasting Cure, which is basically a collection of a bunch of anecdotes where he talks about uh, people who have cured mystery illnesses that uh, they you know struggled with for years, and then in a week of just not eating, were able to reverse it completely and come back to a really rejuvenated place of health. So, I mean, that fascinates me because it's, it's one week, you know, it's, it's not even that long of a time for something that has been plaguing you for years and yet you can correct it that quickly. Uh, it seems like it's more of an extreme thing, but if those results can stick around, then that's pretty powerful. So I tried doing the extended fast and, uh, got to around five days, felt, uh, felt some mineral imbalances, which I didn't really recognize as electrolyte and mineral hydration imbalances until, uh, until my second fast this year. But I still got lots of benefits from it. I used to have, and I think this is really common in a lot of people who follow the Reiki diet, uh, the 3 a.m. awakening syndrome, where basically you, you know, you fall asleep and then at 3 a.m. you wake up with this kind of pitted feeling in your stomach and you just can't go back to sleep. Like even if you have some carbs and salt, it still doesn't really help. You're, you're just kind of awake. And then, you know, you're like, a, you're like zinging until like 6 a.m. when you're supposed to be actually waking up and then you crash and you fall back to sleep and it just ruins your entire daily schedule. So I was, you know, dealing with that pretty consistently. And then after doing the five day fast, it was completely gone. That, like that, it just completely went away. And my sleep was much, much deeper. Uh, I felt much more recovered, felt, uh, some, some clarity, less brain fog, brain fog, more energy, like all those, all those really awesome things that it's like, wow, I've been trying to, to achieve this with nutrition for so long 
And it was actually the absence of nutrition that helps to, to, to allow my body to heal. So, uh, that was a huge turning point for me. It was a huge awakening. And, uh, my girlfriend was doing it at the same time and she had been plagued with a, uh, terrible, terrible headache for about a year after a car accident she had. Um, she had a concussion and it would basically, the headache was just lasting for a very long time. Uh, after doing four, I think she did it for four days. She never went back to having the headache again. And it was, it was literally an everyday thing for an entire year. Um, which is those kind of, you know, miraculous, almost sounding healings. That's what draws me to this because I've worked with a lot of clients who have mystery illnesses and I've tried playing around with nutrition. I've tried playing around with supplementation and it, start, it starts to get a little disheartening because it's, you know, with mystery illnesses, there's like intense causes, some deep causes that you can't necessarily fix with more of the, uh, the light stuff, you know, like just taking supplements or, or, uh, or, you know, manipulating food choices. You have to do something a little bit more extreme in some cases, and it seems like fasting, you know, really can be that tool, especially because of how naturalistic it is. The, the fact that it actually is allowing your body to do what your body naturally wants to do and actually come to a place of healing. So, I mean, that's always, it's fascinated me since then. I've been studying it for basically the past year or so. And then a couple of weeks ago, I decided to do an even longer fast. Uh, and I this time supplemented with some minerals and found that that helped immensely. So that this fast ended up being a 10 day fast. And, uh, you know, I, th at this point, I'm actually 10 days into being refed. So the, uh, the same amount of time having been refed since actually fasting and, uh, the sleep quality has been just off the charts. Um, energy has been great, but I also had a lot of new insights around like psychology and emotions that came up during that time. So that's sort of been my, uh, experience with fasting. You know, um, I've, I've, detailed the five day fast on my channel uh, for last year for anyone who wants to go uh you know see more of the story behind that um my channel is amplified vitality uh, on youtube and you can go find that video i'm about to release another video talking about my 10-day fast that's going to go into more detail with that so yeah that's awesome man I, I mean just to emphasize a little bit on what you were saying i think a lot of people don't fully understand the difference between something like a daily intermittent fasting and an extended fast because really the research is showing you know that if you're just fasting for half a day or for the 16 hours or whatever you really can't get those same changes that you can get from a long-term fast mm -hmm. like you're talking about yeah and uh really if you think about evolution we our bodies used to take advantage of this all the time i mean think about how many uh areas in the world when winter would come that there just wouldn't be any food available you know, probably for days at a time. Yeah. And so we would dip into these like really deep ketosis states and, you know, kind of like you said, clean house, tear down old cells, old mitochondria, all that stuff. And, and then afterwards kind of build it up back new. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then also, uh, that taps into the ideas around muscle loss because, you know, during a fast, your body wouldn't want to use muscle. It would want to preserve it as much as possible so that you could still hunt. So you could still get food and things like that. Yeah, what's crazy is is the animal research that we have right now with uh, different types of extended fasting. Um, it usually shows zero muscle loss. And even the human studies, a lot of human studies we have, muscle loss is zero to very minimal, mm -hmm. which usually bounces back when you kind of start eating again. Yeah, exactly. So it's I think it's completely different from... You know, people think that if they, you know, people are used to dieting and then when they diet for weeks and weeks on end, they lose muscle, obviously, yeah. but, uh, that's completely different than like a, a five or seven day, very short term fasting situation. Well, that's why to me, it makes so much sense. And I love the work of, uh, Dr. Jason Fung, who talks a lot about fasting and especially extended fasting. Uh, to me, it makes a lot more sense that if you're trying to lose weight or you're wanting to correct something like fatty liver disease, or you're wanting to, uh, you know, improve your metabolism or any of those things. It makes way more sense to me to do something that's acute and, and, uh, very focused, something like fasting that's going to get a lot of work done in a short amount of time and then allow your physiology to bounce back and kind of be back in maintenance mode. To me, that makes way more sense than chronically suppressing hormones through this very slight calorie reduction over the long term. And I'm not saying that doesn't work because clearly that's how, you know, bodybuilders and fitness, uh, um, like models and things like that. That's how they get lean is they, they do some of that chronic dieting. But the research shows that it doesn't last. It's not sustainable. And it, it's crazy to think that every nutritionist in the world basically just says, 
eat less and move more, even though it has something like a 90% fail rate. So it's clearly there's something not <laughs> right there, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I've, um, I mean, I, back uh, 10 years ago or so, I used to definitely do the low carb extended dieting for, for just weeks and weeks on end. And, and towards the end of that, I would just feel miserable. Like every part of my, you know, physiology, I could tell was kind of shutting down a little yeah. bit, just the energy, the sleep, the, the everything. Yeah. And, uh, and even now, if I do try to cut weight or anything, if I don't do the fasting, I always, uh, do pretty frequent diet breaks just because I don't want to be in that extended period of under eating. Mm-hmm. But I think the fasting is for sure kind of another, another thing most people don't even consider in trying. Yeah. And, and cause we're told all the time that it's, oh, that's unhealthy. That's like the unhealthy way to lose weight is crash dieting, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I, there's definitely people who do it in, within an unhealthy way. I think intention is really important when it comes to this. If you're going into it with a, an intention of healing the body and of supporting it, and, you know, like tapping into those fat stores intensely, giving a strong stimulus to get rid of them, and then coming back to a place where you're refeeding properly and actually taking care of your body, then I don't see a problem with that at all. If you're going into it with this like starvation, desperation, like attachment of the outcome, needing to starve yourself because you need to be lean or else you're not going to be happy kind of thing, like that, that's asking for problems. You're going to run into it. Uh, you're, you're not going to be a lot, your actions won't be aligned with the highest level of health. Your actions are going to be more aligned with, uh, you know, ignoring signs and signals where your body's saying, Hey, I need to, I need food now. I'm ready to start eating again. But in my last fast, my 10 day fast, I had some very interesting weight fluctuations. Uh, the first three or four days I actually gained weight, which didn't really make much sense. I, I mean, I'm sure it's sodium and water and stuff like that. And then within an eight hour period, lost 10 pounds and then continue to lose uh, another eight pounds before the end of the fast. So in 10 days, I lost 18 pounds. Now in refeeding, I ended up putting that food back in my gut. I added, um, you know, some glycogen and water weight back. And I'm sure there was a little bit of muscle loss that I've regained since then. So I'm still down 10 pounds. So to me, it's like 10, 10 pounds in 10 days is a huge motivation start. And all of my hormones are bouncing back because now I'm eating at maintenance. So rather than going for eight, 12, 16 weeks in this chronically deprived state, I just lost 10 pounds very easily, like without much effort at all. And then I'm now coming back to a place where my body's happy and it's in a good functioning place. And there's no drive to regain that weight lost, whereas chronic dieting does have that drive to regain that weight loss. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, there's this huge field called epigenetics that's just becoming more and more popular. Uh and it really has a lot of, of really cool implications on what it can mean for, for the, maybe the level of control that we might have over how our genes are expressed mm-hmm. and how our body kind of functions. So would you mind talking, just explaining a little bit about what epigenetics really is and then how fasting can have or induce epigenetic changes? Sure. Um, I think the... I like to approach everything from the simplest, highest level of understanding possible and then kind of work it my way down into the details from there. So at a very high level, epigenetics is basically the expression of your genes. So we're all born with genes from, you know, from birth. We have a certain DNA sequence that doesn't really change through our lives. However, the expression of that DNA does change based on environmental circumstances, uh, nutrition, and many other things. And also um, even just lifespan. So, um, you know, your genes that you had when you were a baby are the same genes that you have now. However, you went through a phase during puberty where you gained a lot of height, you gained body hair, you gained all these different things uh, as your body had these changes, and yet the genes didn't change at all. What changed was an epigenetic signal based on the time course that you were in in the span of your life, which had those signals that said, hey, these genes need to express at this time in order to create this the manifestation of the changes in the body. So... What research is basically finding is that there's a lot of ways that we can actually have an impact on the way that our DNA expresses. Uh, the technical ways that it does this has to do with uh, methylating DNA and with uh, some histone reactions and things like that. Um, but basically what it is is turning on and off genes and being able to uh, dictate the way that those genes express themselves. Uh, fasting and, in general, uh, calorie restriction, but I, you know, I think the, obviously the extreme version of calorie restriction would be fasting, uh, is being shown in research to have epigenetic changes and especially changes on things like, uh, mitochondrial biogenesis and free radical, uh, elimination and things like that, uh, that actually improve the way that your metabolism works and improves the way that you produce energy. 
So at a, at a very uh, high, at, a, at a, an easy way to explain this, I guess, would be the DNA uh, has certain instructions in it, which it transcribes onto something called mRNA, which is like a messenger, a messenger DNA, if you want to think about that. So this mRNA goes to the ribosomes where then uh, those instructions are transcribed to create proteins. Our entire body is basically what we are, our protein factories. We create proteins that uh, form the structure and form the function of the way that our body works. So when we have a lot of uh, these proteins being made, they're going to change the way that our body actually behaves, the way that the things that happen. So free radicals and uh, you know other toxins, heavy metals and things like that can interfere with the way that DNA transcribes onto our, into the mRNA, which actually creates uh, basically defunct proteins, either weak pr proteins or misfolded proteins. And they still they can still work, they can still do their jobs, but they kind of become uh, less powerful or they become sort of distorted a little bit in the way that they express. So that's sort of how cancer gets started. Uh, the DNA gets some sort of glitch in it where it starts to create uh, cells and proteins that have their replication gene turned on, basically. So they just continue to replicate, 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 uh, taking away nutrients and producing byproducts that end up killing the organism. So what fasting can do is it creates a selective pressure towards using protein that causes the body to break down any proteins that aren't absolutely necessary. And so that means that things like those misfolded proteins and those broken proteins that aren't working quite well get broken down into their amino acids so that the body can recycle them and use them. Uh, this is partly why something like a fasting mimicking diet, which is basically a low-carb, low-protein diet that has about 30% of your normal calories, it has a lot of the same effects as a actual fasting diet. And the reason is because of that selective protein where your body wants to break down any proteins that it doesn't absolutely need. And this also has to do with phagocytosis, the breakdown of those dead and weakened cells. Basically, your body's recycling all those things and creating that pressure so that the weak ones that aren't really contributing as much end up getting destroyed. So there are mice studies, I believe, that have that show that some, that some of the organ weight uh, drops by something like 50% during a fast, which then completely regrows during the refeeding phase. And that comes along with a lot of uh, stem cell stimulation during the fast and then stem cell regeneration during the refeeding phase. So really what you can think about is if you're dealing with some sort of disorder, some sort of um, expression of your DNA that is subpar, which would be an epigenetic thing, then basically something in your DNA is creating proteins that aren't doing, aren't, that aren't fulfilling the blueprint of health that you want for your body. So by going through a fast, you can actually break down those uh, broken proteins, those misfolded proteins, to a point where your organs might shrink a little bit and they might they might destroy the tissue that's not working optimally, so that when you go back to the refeeding phase, those tissues regrow and the stem cells contribute to fresh new organs. And in that way, you're actually becoming physically new by going through the process of fasting and refeeding. So I think that's basically the epigenetic story behind how fasting and calorie and, and complete calorie restriction can uh, be so powerful for changing the way that our bodies express themselves. Dude, that's such a good explanation. And I just want to kind of emphasize to the audience a little bit that not only can this happen with organs, but it can also happen with something like the immune system, where with people with autoimmune conditions, you can actually break down the parts of the immune system that are auto-reactive or that are targeting your own tissue during the fast and then afterwards can kind of rebuild back up with better functioning immune yeah, systems too. And that's been tested with like MS and IBS and a few Yeah, the, there's like a blip, uh, a clip people talk about that's like the immune system. In three days, the immune system can completely regenerate from fasting. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. And, and another thing that like I want people to really get this point is that fasting like this is almost the polar opposite of how most people diet. And so it's not going to have regular dieting is not going to have any of these benefits because like you said, the fasting kind of needs to be low protein because if it's, if it's high in protein, we're going to be breaking down the proteins we're eating. But if it's low in protein, our body will start targeting, like you said, kind of our own proteins mm -hmm. in our body. And so how most people diet, which is a very high protein diet, usually for weight loss and body composition, uh, that very likely won't have any of these. Benefits. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's a lot of different ways that you can fast. So I already mentioned the fasting mimicking diet. Um, the, the polar opposite to that would be something that's like a protein sparing modified fast. And you might get better body composition results from doing a protein sparing modified fast versus a full fast. But you're, the trade off you're getting is that you're not having that 
uh, like what you just said, you're not having that stimulus towards breaking down the broken proteins and the broken cells because your body still has all that protein that it needs. Yep, exactly. So, so for the people listening and they're thinking to themselves now, you know, they might be really interested. They might be thinking about trying a fast on their own. How would you go about recommending people start fasting? Like, let's say if they've never fasted in their life before, which most people haven't, um, how would they go about starting to experiment with fasting? Should they, you know, go slow? Should they, do they need to worry about minerals? Do they, can they jump into a five day fast? Like, what are your, what's your advice? From my theoretical, technical perspective, I think that everyone could just jump into a fast and they would be pretty healthy. They would be fine. I don't think, I think there's probably some conditions that may be contraindicated by that. But for the most part, I think that it, that most people, their bodies naturally, and a lot of people actually, their bodies probably want to fast. They want to detox. They want to have that time of digestive rest and rejuvenation and stuff like that. So having said that, I think that from a practical perspective, if no, if someone's never fasted before at all, then they should start playing with some, some intermittent fasting style, you know, like skipping breakfast and lunch, uh, having, you know, a bigger dinner at night, just sort of get that feel of what it's like to go without eating for a little while. And then if they decide that they'd like to do a longer fast, then what I would recommend is for about a week to follow a strict keto diet where they're having very low carbs and focusing mostly on fats and a little bit of protein. And then at the same time, really upping their sodium intake, making sure they're drinking something like, you know, high salt bone broth, um, salting their food generously, maybe even supplementing with uh, baking soda or something like that, which also has performance benefits for working out. Um, things like that to keep the sodium levels high. Basically, uh, the keto flu, which is uh, the idea that uh, when you cut out carbohydrates in your diet, you end up getting these flu-like symptoms and you're kind of worn down. A lot of that has to do with the body shifting away from carb use into more fat and ketone use, which takes a little bit of time. So there is such a thing as fat adaptation, and it usually takes about three to six weeks, three to six weeks to fully, um, for your body fully to change over. And uh, part of that has to do with increasing mitochondria and improving the way the, that they work and all that stuff. But another big part of it is that there's something called uh, the naturesis of fasting, which is basically whenever you don't have insulin to uh, signal to the kidneys to hold on to sodium, you're much more likely to lose sodium much faster. So that turns on adrenaline, it turns on aldosterone, which is basically trying to hold on to the sodium as much as possible. So it start, starts to cause some electrolyte imbalances. And some researchers are actually finding that the keto flu is only about sodium, a uh, sodium restriction and running out and your body having uh, depletion of sodium. So if you go and on keto for a little while, you're going to maybe go through a little bit of this adaptation. But if you keep sodium high, it's going to be pretty mild. Then when you go into full fasting, your body's already going to be running on fat and it's already going to have some level of ketones uh, having been produced. And so at this point, you're going to be much more pro, uh, uh, much more potentiated to get into that deeper ketosis and get into the fasting state without necessarily going through that first three-day period that's really, really rough. Uh, during the fast, I absolutely, the, the purest part of me, you know, when I first was fasting was like, no, I'm not going to have anything except for water. Like it has to be all out. Like, like that's, I have to be an absolutist about this. But what I found is that's really not, that's really not true. And it's not a good approach, especially if you have a, a hard time holding on to sodium. You really do want to continue to have your minerals. So a little fasting starter kit that I would say to is a really great way to um, keep things, to keep all your minerals in balance while you fast would be to have a low calorie, high sodium bone broth to uh, have mineral water, something like Perrier, which is high in calcium, uh, to supplement with potassium and supplement with magnesium. And then uh, I also liked doing the juice of one lemon in, squeezed into uh, to mineral water, which has some potassium and it has some vitamin C. So if you have that little package of things and you're taking them once a day, you know, maybe in replacement of your dinner, uh, you're not breaking the fast. Even though you're getting a little protein from the bone broth, you're still, your protein is still very, very low. I think my, the bone broth I used had like 35 calories per cup. So it's, you're really not breaking the fast. And most research on fasting allows up to 250 calories or something like that. So, uh, you're, you're not breaking your fast. You don't have to be an absolutist about it, but that's going to mitigate most of the problems that people have with fasting. And it's going to take away a lot of the risks that, uh, and side effects that develop. Um, most, the majority, majority of people are going to have no problem with it, but there are some stories, you know, those horror stories of something that went wrong and somebody died because they fasted and they did something wrong. If you 
supplement with bone broth and sodium and minerals, you're basically removing any of that likelihood because you're you're keeping your minerals. It's always a mineral imbalance thing that is an issue with side effects and anything like that. So um, during the fast, yeah, keeping those minerals up is going to be super, super powerful. And then here's the other the other really, really important thing that most people get wrong is breaking the fast and coming into the refeeding phase. The last thing that you want is a huge insulin spike right when you're coming out of fasting. Insulin tells magnesium, it tells the cells to take in magnesium and potassium, and it tells your body to hold on to sodium and water. So if at this time when your minerals are already probably in a little bit more of a depleted state, and when your body is really relying on ketones and not very sensitive to insulin, if you have this big in spike of insulin, you get something called refeeding syndrome, which causes these huge mineral, mineral fluctuations, which have actually been fatal in some cases. So that's not meant to scare anyone because the likelihood of you doing that is also kind of rare because your appetite's so reduced that you actually can't eat that much right when you start eating again. But what that is, me is meant to say is the first three days off of a fast should be very light and should come back into another keto diet, doing protein and some fats and keeping carbs pretty low. Then after that point, start adding in some fruits and maybe some honey, so, you know, some very light carbs. And then maybe in the five to seven day range, you can start adding in carbs like um, potatoes or sweet potatoes or rice or something like that. Awesome. Yeah, that's a, that's a super good overview of all the fasting, um, diet tips and stuff. When I was, I was just doing a, a fast mimicking diet myself and I did a very similar thing. I was making bone broth and I, and because it was a fast mimicking diet, I was having just a bunch of like veggies and broccoli and all that. And I would just throw all that in the, the bone broth soup and now I'd add like over a teaspoon of salt. I would just add some, some potassium chloride right into the soup um, and stuff like that. And that mm -hmm. it helped a ton make sure that I wasn't having any of those mineral. Did you issues. feel like when you were on the fasting um, making diet, did you feel any weird side effects or was it pretty smooth? Yeah. Well, for me, it was pretty smooth. Um, the only thing I would say is I did it for five days and uh, day two was the worst for both me and my fiance. We both did it together. Um, day two was the worst just in terms of hunger. Like our body just wasn't used to it. Um, we didn't go into, we didn't do like any type of low carb or anything kind of leading up to it. Uh, so it was kind of a, more of an abrupt shift for us. Uh, but day two is the worst, really, really hungry. Uh, each day after that got easier and easier. Um, by day three or four, I could tell that I was just kind of depleted overall. Like I didn't, like I definitely didn't want to go for a run or like kind of do anything like that. But, um, mentally and and really I mean every other regard I felt pretty well yeah that was that's um that's interesting did you how many calories do you think you were taking in per day I was we were, she was doing um about 500 okay, or I was doing gotcha. about 700 yeah it's interesting because uh there was when I did my the full fast the 10 day fast around days five or six I hit the stage of of complete euphoria that was I've it literally I it was a sensations that I haven't felt since I was a kid like that Saturday morning, like excitement feeling when you wake up in the morning. And there was just these like deep emotional shifts that were happening because of like that. The only way I can describe it is like that the deep cellular cleaning that has, that has an emotional component to it. You know, your cells have memory, your cells are holding on to a lot of the traumas and wounding that you have psychologically. And so like clearing that out, just like brought up these things that I hadn't felt in a long time. And there was uh there was one day where I, I went out for a walk and I was just going to do an hour long walk. And I had so much energy that I, I walked for two hours and I just, I was just speed walking for two hours because I just had such mental clarity and such energy in the body. And I was like completely disinterested in food, which is, was wild to me because it's like, I haven't eaten five or six days and like the thought of food is actually repulsing right now. Like I don't even want to think about food. And, uh, yeah, that, that stage alone, I think was hugely healing, you know, for me. I think that the experience of that is what's really, really important. Yeah, it, you know, honestly, the next time that I do it, I might just do a, a, a water or water mineral fast, kind of like you were saying, but um, instead of the fast mimicking diet, I kind of chose that one because it was my first time and never did an extended fast before. And, uh, you know, the research is still really strong with the fast mimicking diet, but I, I, I do wonder if, if you might get a little bit more pronounced effects. Um, well, I do think that that's fast. a great way for people to ease into it. If, if someone feels hesitant about going on no food at all, then doing a fast mimicking diet is definitely a good baby step towards it. Um, yeah, I think, I think that that's probably a, a decent way to kind of lead into it. Um, 
but it really depends on your comfort level and, you know, making sure you have people around you that, you know, in case anything goes wrong, making sure that you're, you know, like you said, having your minerals and everything. And otherwise you should be pretty safe. Mm -hmm. So now because you kind of brought up kind of these psychological slash spiritual changes that you felt on the diet, I know that kind of in general, um, you've, you've kind of been on this somewhat of the spiritual journey yourself, uh, as have I kind of recently. Um, so how do you think, you know, how do you think, and you kind of did a very brief overview in the last statement, but how do you think, uh, fasting can kind of tie in with spirituality? And then after that, what, like, explain a little bit about how your spiritual journey has been and what your thoughts are. Uh, about, you know, mindfulness presence. Um, yeah. Right so now. the, the, an insight that came to me during meditation around that five or six day mark when I was in that euphoria is that, you know, like the, the entire idea around meditation is to, to explore yourself, to begin to understand your automatic processes, to understand like the animalistic part, part portion of you that's acting on automatic conditioning and to understand those things so that you can start to see them and integrate them rather than allowing them to come up and take you over and sort of possess you. So people who are what what is called spiritually awake are people who understand this aspect of themselves. They understand who they are and they understand their tendencies and work with those tendencies in order to become a more integrated whole being rather than a fragmented being that sort of gets possessed by different ideas or conditionings or reactive based on what's happening in the world. So in exploring this and in trying to understand the deep layers within yourself of, of who and what you really are, uh, there's the the analogy that kind of came to me was you're swimming in a lake and you have to dive to the bottom of the lake in order to find these pieces that are sitting on the, the bottom of the floor with fasting it was like the water was dropped to knee height so i was just walking through the pond reaching down and just picking things up everything was right there on the surface very very easy for me mm. to manipulate to see it was all it, it just presented itself it was very it was very very present uh, and a lot of that was, it just felt like this sharp mental power. And I, and I, I almost want to say psychic power, you know, I don't want that to, to get too, too woo woo, but it felt like a, a, an ability to see things that I couldn't see before. Uh, it was, and it was very, very interesting. So meditation was incredibly enhanced by going on the fast. Now I have a, a strong knowing within me that, uh, and, and I, I've worked a lot, a lot trying to figure out how to articulate it in the best way. That the physical body and the psychological body or the spirit or the mind, the mind and body are actually one and that the body is expressing whatever the mind holds within it. The thing is, we don't really know what is held within our minds because we're not aware of it. We're mostly, mostly unconscious. We're mostly sleepwalking, uh, responding to things in ways that we don't even realize we're responding. But at the end of the day, there's a certain understanding that no one else is beating your heart like you are beating your heart at, at the most at the deepest level you are digesting your food at the deepest level but you have no idea how you do those things and yet it's also true that you do them and so there's this interesting balance because taking full responsibility for your consciousness which some people could call mind mindfulness or you know awareness and things like that taking full responsibility for your consciousness sounds like it could fall into the blame game of saying well, if your body is sick, it's because there's something in your mind that you're doing, and so it's your fault that you're sick. Well, that's a really poor outlook on this. That's not what I'm trying to say at all. There's no blame involved because you don't know that you're doing it. And if you did know that you're doing it, you wouldn't be doing it. So there's no blame here. And yet, at the same time, there is this self-empowerment that comes from knowing that you actually are the one that is doing it, so there's something you can do about it. It's not like you're a victim and something outside of you is happening to you. There is some level, deep layer within you that is expressing something that is misaligned with the blueprint of health of who you truly are. If the mind is pure and the mind is completely uh, devoid of that negative conditioning, this constant chronic negative feeling, these, you know, these emotional problems and anxieties and, and fears and anger and, you know, the, like that underlying guilt that you almost, it's just sort of like a low grade noise that's always there that affects your health. You know, you can feel emotions in your body. Your body is responding to the emotional energy. The, the energy field of that emotion is causing a physical reaction within your body. And this also isn't completely unfounded scientifically. There are some, uh, some new stuff coming out about epigenetics in response to electromagnetic fields. And your body has an electromagnetic field that has been measured up to three meters outside of the body. And based on your emotional state, that electromagnetic field will actually change. It'll either shrink or expand. And so there's a real physical basis for that 
open-hearted feeling where you feel big and, and great and you feel like you're filling the room with yourself versus that constricted and contracted fear-based self, there's a real change in the energy and the feeling that you're getting in your body is because the cells of your body are responding to the change in the energetic field. So if you're constantly in a negative state, and even if you don't realize it, but there's just this underlying recognition that, uh, or an underlying uh, perception of the world as being a fearful place. And so it's just how you've always been. You just assume that that's how reality is. You don't even realize that you're basically poisoning your body with a low level of fear all the time. And so the, the willingness to view these things and to open up and see where that fear is or where the anger is or where the guilt is, recognize that that negative emotional field is hurting you and hurting everyone else around you and is unnecessary. And then the willingness to integrate it, to look at it, to, to see the shadow parts of you and, and welcome them in instead of trying to resist them and push them away so that later on they come up and possess you and take you over. You know, doing that, that work, that inner work will actually change the baseline physiology that you react to. And this this also is shown in spiritual healings and even psychedelic healings where people will have some deep emotional shift from an experience, whether it's initiated by something like psilocybin mushrooms or just from a, a deep meditation that's actually a life-changing meditation. You have these emotional shifts which change your perception of the world and then the, there's the, what we call spontaneous remission or spontaneous healings. And those are the result of a new perception, a new baseline energy in which the body is expressing itself. So mindfulness has a huge component here. And fasting to me is basically a way to open up to those higher realities. I think there's a, a Gandhi quote that says something like fasting frees the soul from the body so that the, so that, uh, the soul can express itself more freely or something like that. So, uh, to me, that's, that's the role that fasting plays in, in all this. Yeah, there's so much I want to expand on on, on, what, on what you just said there. To um, to give the, the the listeners a little bit of something to kind of look up uh, if they're curious, because this might be the first time they're hearing anything like this before. Uh, there's a group of researchers with an organization called HeartMath, where they've put out a bunch of cool research showing that our heart, which actually produces, it's largely responsible for that electromagnetic field like you were talking about um, that can extend, you know, three feet or so. Uh, it, it is a two-way street with the brain, and we think that the brain kind of controls the heart, uh, but we actually find that when you look at the neurons, 90% of the traffic is going from the heart to the brain. And so the heart actually is informing the brain. We find that when we're in these positive emotional states like joy or gratitude, appreciation, abundance, whatever, you know, anything like that, that actually changes the electromagnetic signature of the heart that you can measure via the, the EKGs and, and, and stuff that we have right now that literally measures the electromagnetic field of the heart. And, um, and you can see a profound shift not only in the heart, but then that getting transmitted to the brain and thus you know, your consciousness in a sense. And so, you know, that doesn't explain everything, but it's kind of a cool little opening to the fact that, you know, this stuff is actually real. It's not just, you know, someone just saying, uh, yes, just based exactly. on, on feeling. And, uh, and then with the, um, meditation and, and mindfulness with fasting, I mean, if you talk to any really long-term meditators or, or people who go on, uh, meditation retreats, there, you, so often you'll hear people, fasting, you know, five to 10 days or so before the retreat, because they're aware of the profound difference that it makes. So that's actually something that I've never looked into myself. I've never, you know, tried to use fasting as a form of expanding my mindfulness or meditation or consciousness or anything like that. So that's super interesting. Yeah, if, something if you I have the willingness myself. to see the parts of yourself that aren't comfortable and a willingness to work through them and release them, and integrate them and heal them and love them and forgive them, then fasting will bring those things up. And your, your resistance to them is only going to continue to create the problems and the issues that are, are symptoms of the, you know, that core energy. But the willingness to actually look at it, which is, it, I you know I get why people don't do it. And there's still some things, there's absolutely times when I know that I'm not ready to let go of something and it's, it's either too, too uncomfortable or too scary to look at or something like that. It takes a lot of courage to look at that and a lot of willingness and trust and faith that it's going to be okay to look at this uncomfortable part of yourself. You know, like if you, uh, a good example of this is if you're going to go, uh, 
speak publicly, you're going to speak in front of a bunch of people that there's this anxiety that starts to come up. There's a little bit of nervousness. Well, that's an energy field of fear. There's like this, what if this happens? Oh no, oh, this, I have to control conditions. I have to manipulate things so that uh, it turns out the way that I want so I can protect myself because I'm vulnerable. And so I need to, I need to protect myself. All of that energy field is this tightness and this, it's rigidness. And if you can, instead of running away from that feeling, which is what the feeling wants you to do, right? It wants you to escape it or it wants you to fix it so you can escape the feeling. If you instead just be willing to sit in the feeling and actually look at it and study it and explore it and say, what is this? Why is this here? What's happening? And then in that energy, just come into acceptance to the point where you could even say, could I actually let this energy be here forever? Would it be all right if this energy was here forever? And if you can actually come to that level of non-resistance, then when you look at what it is, it's going to look a lot different than if you're afraid of it and you're trying to run away from it and you're trying to protect yourself. And so the way that you actually release fear and to the point where you could just, you know, a shy person in the world can be a great public speaker if they just learn to sit with the fear of it in the moment, have the courage and the willingness to do that. And in sitting with that, explore themselves, understand why it is that they automatically react to this situation in that way, and then learn to release it so that they can become free and clear and have uh, great speaking qualities uh, without any of that fear. So that's like an example of how you can actually release these things. Yeah, I mean, um, if you if you look at kind of the standard therapy for anxieties, which is, you know, one of them is exposure therapy, you can see just in the research that exposure therapy actually fails quite often for people. Some people, you know, they get really good results with it and some don't. And, and that's confusing because they're doing what they should be doing. They're kind of exposing them to their fear over and over again, and yet it still doesn't change. And I, I feel like the missing link there is kind of like what you're saying, that they're not regardless of how many times they're they're looking at their fear, every single time they're still resisting it and they're still running away from it. And so they're never truly uh, realizing exactly. it's okay to do Exactly, yeah. The, the, some of the issues is. with research in general is that because it's so data-driven, they want, to, they want it to be like a input-output type of situation. But there's something in between there. It's, it's the intention. It's the perception. It's... Uh, the level of energy at which you're bringing to the experience to actually have, have to be willing to, to, to let the experience change you, to sit in the fire of transformation rather than wanting to run away from it. And that's not necessarily easy to do all the time, but it's always worth it. When you were saying that, the, the analogy that kind of came to my head was that like if you're in a dream and you have this recurring dream where a monster is chasing you and you get this just panic level from it and you're running away from the monster every time and that's what you do, and every time the monster shows up, you run away from it. You don't look at it. Um, you know, you're just obviously you're not accepting it. And so that's that's kind of how most people deal with their fears. And, and thus, it, it just becomes habit and repetition and part of their experience all the time. But instead, if you can kind of turn and face the monster and not try to fight it, but kind of just be more curious about it, like what really is this thing? And just kind of let it be there. Then I feel like that's where it can really start to, to more dissolve. And you can yeah, kind of I mean, you can't see that what you resist because by, by definition, you're pushing it away. So mm -hmm. if you really want to explore something, you have to let it in. And, uh, you know, that's the people are afraid of that because it's yep. the evil parts of you. It's the, the guilty, small, you know, the parts that you really don't want to be a part of you. But you have to recognize with, and that's where the forgiveness part comes in is that like, you're going to have these pieces of yourself that aren't comfortable to look at, but we all have that. That's the human condition. We all have that within ourselves. And the willingness to be nice to yourself and to heal and love yourself and actually look at these things and say, it's okay that this is here. I don't want this to be a part of my experience anymore. I'm willing to look at it. I'm willing to do the work and release it. We all know how to do this inherently. It's, it's built within us and how to do this. It's all just about the way that you approach it and whether you're willing to take responsibility for it or whether you're willing or whether you're still stuck in wanting to blame someone else and say that it's happening to you and you're the victim and support your ego in that way. Which, uh, you know, I understand why people do that. And to a certain extent, there's, there's a protection mechanism that I think some people aren't ready to open up to it. And so that's, they, they want to stay in victim and that's okay. But if they really want something to, to change in their life and they really want to, to grow and move forward and expand, then what it takes is no longer seeing things as if the world's happening to you, but instead see it that the world's happening for you, that everything is, everything that's within your consciousness is your responsibility. And your perception of it can be altered by your decision to do so. 
you know, the, the person who maybe once saw, uh, you know, a public speaking event as the, the most scariest, fearful thing in the world where they felt like they were going to die could end up changing their perception and see it as the most exciting, exhilarating, fulfilling thing because deep in their core, that's something that they've always wanted to do and they were just afraid to do it. And the, the change in perception turned the, the content didn't change. It's the exact same thing. It's still, you know, it's still public speaking. It's their perception that changed it. So that's, and that's sort of, you know, in alignment with the way that we were talking about genetics in the sense that there is an epigenetic quality that changes the content. The genes of the content don't change, but their expression changes. So in the same way, the content of the world doesn't change, but our perception of that content changes. And so that actually changes our experience and our expression. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the kind of the biggest uh, pitfalls with standard self-help and, and that whole field is this idea that people will, will usually who enter that space, they become kind of self-help junkies because they end up being on this constant uh, drive to try to fix a part of themselves. Mm -hmm. And they come at it from that lens of, you know, something's wrong with them, something's broken, they have to fix it. And it, it, th this whole idea of really accepting yourself and accepting life uh, usually doesn't even enter as a possibility or as a way to go about things until usually years and years later where yeah. they've kind of exhausted it's a Chinese thing possibility. The more you pull, the tighter it gets. So you, you're, you have this problem, you're trying to fix this yeah. problem, but every time you try to fix the problem, you're only giving reality to the fact that something's wrong. And so it, you can never get out of that because if you try to fix it, then all you're doing is continuing to perpetuate the problem. You're continuing to say something's wrong. So it takes, it's a weird paradox, but in your acceptance of it, you actually open up the path for it to grow. In your resistance to it, you keep it locked down and, and keep, you keep it the same. You know, you can't grow that way. Mm -hmm. So kind of, uh, kind of concluding the interview now, what do you, kind of my last question here, what do you think is in general kind of most wrong or, uh, how do people go about things kind of poorly in your opinion when it comes to kind of the mass public uh well nutrition i think and health? a lot of the government recommendations uh are not based on what's best for people's health a lot of times it's based on economics and financial gain um you know if there, there's lobbyists for, for like soybean oil farmers or soybean farmers for example uh who are on the board of the fda so it's like how can you be objective in that sense we we know soybean oil is not great for the human health but we're going to get people who are recommending that we have soybean oil in all of our products because that it's financially more feasible than having an, an import like coconut oil. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of stuff right there from a, from the mass perception. Uh, from a more niche perspective, uh, people who actually like really want to know about health and get into it and do their own research, you know, a lot of people who go on YouTube and want to um, learn more about this kind of stuff, they will often fall into camps. So like, I think there's a, there's a saying that the, there's three topics you don't bring up when you go home for Thanksgiving and it's uh, religion, politics, and nutrition. And it's basically like, those are the dogmas that people get attached to and yep. they become very campy. They become very tribal and they say, well, if you don't believe what I believe, then you're somehow insulting my existence. And so I feel threatened and now we're going to have this big fight. So, I mean, I, I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had. And, and you know, I was like this too, back with, uh, intermittent fasting where I would be kind of uh, uh, antagonistic towards people who said that breakfast was the uh, most important meal of the day. And I would, I would like try to fight them on it. Uh, but now in, in my growth, I've recognized that maybe it's not right for some people and maybe the, their belief in whether or not it's going to help them actually will change the outcome of it as well. There's so much individuality and so much variability in all these things that it's really hard to make blanket statements. So my approach has always been, let's look at, all the different things and try to reconcile all the opinions. Uh, can you expand your point of view to the point where it actually can contain all of the opinions? Or do you have to collapse down to a smaller place, which is more comfortable and say, well, no, carbs are absolutely necessary. All Everyone who does keto is an idiot. Or the opposite. And you say, oh, no, carbs are the devil. I can't believe the government's recommending them. That's why it's so terrible. We should all be eating low carb. Well, there's arguments for both, and they're all very good arguments. Like, if you actually, like, really look into the research, you'll find that a lot of, there's a lot of good arguments for both. Um, that doesn't mean one's inherently right or wrong. It really depends on the individual, depends on uh, their personal preferences, and it depends on their experience with it. 
maybe at one point uh, a low-carb diet worked wonders for someone and then they get stuck to that dogma and then it stops working for them and what they actually need is carbs but they're stuck on a low-carb dogma so they never end up changing the, the willingness to be flexible and recognize that there's a lot of variability in all of this is a willingness to not uh, be mentally polarized or mentally positionalized in any way but just keep it keep your mind open and being willing to interpret new data in new ways coming to soft conclusions but not hard conclusions because nutrition is such a soft science so it's not like physics where we can say if we do this a hundred percent of the time this is going to happen it just doesn't work that way as nutrition yeah i totally agree i mean um, I, myself in the past, I've cycled through being in a few different camps, um, but kind of similar to you and my growth, uh, kind of have been able to kind of stand on the outside of all of that and kind of see how, you know, it's just there, like you said, so much inter individual variability there. There's, you know, depending on what your body fat level is, your activity level, just what you prefer, um, the types of foods that you choose, the type of foods you'll stick to eating, just and just your belief system in general, kind of like you said. There's just so much that goes into it that it, it just doesn't make sense to make these Blaken statements that the one yeah, and, and even what you just said the about the belief system, like the placebo effect, is uh, amazing. Like they, they, if you look into some of the research about placebo stuff, it, people can get ridiculous, ridiculous, ridiculous results from taking a sugar pill, but they believe that they're doing something positive for themselves. And so something positive is happening. So it's like, it's very hard to extricate someone's belief systems from a specific diet that they're testing, especially because you can't make diets taste exactly the same. Someone is going to have a different flavor profile if they're doing a high carb versus a high fat, you know? Yep. And one of, uh, there was a study actually a few years ago that, that, you know, I, I was obviously aware of the placebo effects, but usually in, in the form of like, uh, you know, pharmaceuticals or medication or stuff like that, or with diseases, um, this study, they, they took a group of people and half of them gave them nothing at all and they knew they were given nothing and the other half gave them a sugar pill, but were told that they were getting anabolic steroids. And this group of recreational <laughs> lifters gained muscle mass and strength like crazy. That's just wild. They were on steroids. And, and, and it really makes you question, uh, I know. And this is where I'm really starting to explore a lot within myself. Um, the idea is that your beliefs are actually creating the reality that you're experiencing around you and really understanding that if you have a self-image of yourself as a scrawny little dude or something, then it's going to be hard for you to gain muscle. Even if you're doing everything right, unless your belief or, or unless the perception of yourself changes and, and maybe that happens through lifting, maybe you go and lift and you eat a high protein diet and you're doing all that stuff. And so because of that, your self-image changes to someone who is a bigger person, then maybe your body will actually follow it. But until that self-image changes, if you're just trying to do everything right, but not actually being willing to change the way you view yourself and the beliefs that you have, then the results aren't going to be there. That, and that's what those sort of studies really show. These people thought they were taking anabolic steroids and started to see themselves as more muscular and more strong. And what happened was that they actually manifested that. I completely agree. I, I, I truly do think that on, on a very fundamental level, any real lasting change has to eventually come from altering, you know, some fundamental beliefs you might have, and even more importantly, altering your self-identity or kind of like you said, your self-perception of who you are. Uh, you know, if, if you, otherwise your efforts are going to kind of be in vain. Like a smoker can try to quit smoking as hard as possible, but if they continue to see themselves as a smoker and that's who they are, then you know, they're fighting. Exactly. Almost yeah, like exactly. Infinitely and that's, and that, I think that's a big part too, to tie it back into fasting and, and some of the spiritual healings is that, uh, there's, uh, some interesting research around psychedelics that shows it's not just the chemical that has the healing effect. It's the experience that the person has. So if someone takes psychedelics and there's a story about an alcoholic who took psychedelics and literally after 20 years of chronic excessive alcohol use dropped it cold turkey because he, he had a healing experience that just completely removed the desire for alcohol at all. The experience that he had on the psychedelic was what was necessary in order for that healing to take place. It wasn't some chemical thing that was happening. The same thing happens with spiritual healings and the same thing happens with fasting. There's an experience that is necessary that actually has some sort of change in the way that you do things because it changes your belief system. It's not just a chemical, physical, materialistic thing that's happening. There's something around your psychology that's actually shifting in these situations. Yeah, dude, that's so awesome. I think that, you know, this has been just such a, 
such a great conversation, even mm-hmm. just for me personally. And I think it's it's inspired me to do my next water fast or my first yeah, water awesome. fast earlier than I, I probably would have otherwise. Um, yeah, but thanks. It was it, it was such a pleasure having you on, and really a great conversation. I think that that this is going to help kind of allow people to start thinking about nutrition, spirituality, belief systems, just so many different things in a little bit of a different lens. Awesome, of course. Um, yeah, so and thank you for really having me. I, I always enjoy these kinds me. of conversations as well. And, uh, you know, we all, it's, it's this awesome thing. I, I love this from uh, Jordan Peterson. He was talking on Joe Rogan, and he had this analogy of during a conversation, there's these micro deaths that are happening between both of us as we're adjusting to what's happening. And so we both come out of it a little bit of a different person than we went into it. And so I, I always hold that in my ideas when I'm talking with people in conversation because it's a chance for both people to grow and come to a new level. And it's, it's just awesome. Oh, yeah. That's so good, man. Um, so now to kind of kind of conclude this, where can people really find yeah, you? Yeah, so um, my, my, my you YouTube channel is where I do most of my content. Uh, it's Amplified that, Vitality. So um, you can also reach me on, uh, if you want to message me, I would say reach, reach me on my Instagram, which is just uh, really Tim Burzins. My handle is just Tim Burzins. And uh, yeah, those are the, probably the main places to reach me. I'm going to be doing a lot more content so, um, around fasting because I've had such great results with this and because there's a lot of cool research I'm excited to explore and a lot of cool ideas that I want to share. So if you want to hear about my 10-day fast and that experience, the video is going to be coming out soon for that. Make sure you go to my channel and subscribe. And uh, if you have any questions, hit me up on Instagram, and uh, I hope that I can hear from some of you guys and have some, have, uh, you know, some good conversations. Super, super appreciate. Right, Absolutely, well, thanks for being on here. We're gonna have to do this again for Thank you. All right, take care. Make sure you go to goldenhealthmethod.com and subscribe to my weekly newsletter, where I discuss information not shown anywhere else. Join our community and further dedicate yourself to mastery in nutrition and health. Remember, every day you can make choices that will further keep you in the status quo, or you can decide to really make your health the priority that it is and go out there and crush it. Until next time, my friends.